whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Hi, yes. Thank you so much, Kieran. It's great to be on. I'm Steve Yablo. I teach where you do at MIT in linguistics and philosophy. I was at Michigan before that. I do metaphysics and semantics and epistemology, philosophy of math, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's pretty much me. Now, th- th- there's no particular reason why Iris Murdoch would have figured in your your work, I think. But I'm curious: is 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 Murdoch's philosophy something you've come across and read, or is it is it just not part of the orbit of of metaphysics and philosophy of language and mind that you you've mainly worked on? So, I haven't, in the ordinary sort of course of events, kind of come across Murdoch much. I saw her picture. Or, or a portrait of her in your office. Oh, yes. And then I was reading some Mary Midgley, who I guess was a contemporary in some ways of Murdoch. And she has this lovely paper called Philosophy as Plumbing. Yes. Anyway, so then I started, I never did get around to reading any of Murdoch's philosophy, but I read a bunch of her novels. And that's all I'll say about that. You, you, were, not, you were not a fan of her novels? I, I like The Sea, The Sea. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, some of them felt a bit kind of didactic to me in some way that bugged me. But, um, you know, I bow down to her as like a great figure of literature and philosophy, which are both things I care about a lot. And, you know, and I, I kind of, you know, I blame myself for not seeing everything that was going on. Well, I think blaming yourself for a failure to. St- see deeply enough into something's virtues seems very Murdochian. So that's that's a good oh. uh, that's a good <laughs> good reaction. <laughs> so yeah, she she is the the inspiration for the podcast. So she starts each episode telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So I always start by asking, does your temperament influence your philosophical work? And if so, how? Yeah, so this question somewhat freaked me out because my mother is a was a clinical psychologist of an era where the notion of temperament was like really played a big role. I can't even remember who the was it Adler or something like that. I can't remember who the person anyway, but she, she thought temperament explained everything. Anyway, so I don't want to think in terms of temperament. Uh-huh. It kind of just makes me too nervous to proceed. But I'll I'll answer slightly autobiographically if I can. Yes. It kind of does. I, I do think that stuff that goes back to my parents influences my philosophy. My parents kind of had like almost opposite approaches to belief and opinion and knowledge. My dad was like highly s- skeptical of just about everything you would say, including about your own 
like introspectable state. So I would come back from the plaza and I would say, oh, there's like onion buns for sale at the bakery. And my dad would say, I highly doubt that or that's your opinion, uh-huh. <laughs> or et cetera, just on the basis of like a priori surmise. Uh, and I would say I was hungry. He would say, are you hungry or are you in the mood for food? And then I would like, I, you know, it's like Austin has this joke where he says, well, this comment where he says, you know, the philosopher is like someone who raises, who says, you know, are you sure? But doesn't tell you exactly what you ought to be worried about like where the weak spot is in your position. My dad was like that. He was like, hmm, mood for food. So what is it? I don't feel it strongly enough for it to be hunger or blah, blah, blah. Anyway, my mom was the, the opposite. She was like highly unskeptical to the point of like her evidential cup was always like running over. Every new experience like brought further confirmation of what she'd already thought and she'd always be like looking at you and raising her eyebrows you see just like we talked about earlier i I never often knew what what it was that was being you know looking for anyway so i had a reaction formation kind of response to both of them which left me in a little bit of a strange place so to counter my dad in his skepticism i got to think look Deciding what to think or belief formation can't be such a minefield. They like you know they wouldn't let us, they wouldn't let us do it. You know, you know things have got to be at least a lot of the time just like how how they seem. You don't always have to be as vigilant as you always are. And then, in the way of reaction formations, I sort of overreacted and I started thinking like, well, who cares if I'm strictly speaking mistaken? You know, when do people ever speak strictly or take responsibility for the entirety of what the, of what they're saying. And I was, I, I just, I, I refused to accept any critique from my dad's perspective because he was just so harsh. And I think this led, you know, in a fairly direct way to like my interest in fictionalism and figuralism and the idea that, you know, you presuppose certain things and you're not held responsible for them. And this idea of like, subject matter and sometimes you're just talking about you're addressing your comments to certain subject matter and not another matter and so you 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 know you're not taking responsibility for what you might get wrong about things that you weren't talking about kit fine once at a conference made fun of me about this he said as i interpret steve he's he's speaking only for the essential truth of his statements or the essential truth of of your statement is your statement minus any false bits. Yeah. <laughs> so if anything is false, that you you weren't like putting any assertive force behind. Anyway, but this brings me a bit too close for comfort to my mom. So I didn't want to be too much of a wishful thinker. I didn't want to be like finding like fresh confirmation from my views around every corner. So I thought, well, if you're going to cut yourself that much slack, the least you can do is like try to clarify how the excuses work in metaphysics this led to like a view where every possible object is really out there you can't go too far wrong because all the bases are covered whatever you think you're talking about it's there to be the truth maker for what you're saying and it also relates to the other areas that i mentioned so anyway i'm torn between thinking that people are too hard on themselves and that they're not hard enough and and my compromise has been well, you should basically 
be hyper forgiving of yourself, but it's good to have a theory of why the forgiveness is justified. Well, I, I like that a lot. I, I like the essential truth comment. It reminds me of, I, I think this was Goodman's proof that P, Nelson Goodman's yes. proof that P was, you, you've interpreted my thesis. You have not interpreted my thesis in the way I intended yeah. in offering your counterexample, for I intended there to be no counterexample. Right, exactly. Which, uh, it's, it's, it's in the same spirit. I mean, is this a kind of post hoc reconstruction? Or did you, as you were doing philosophy, or sort of when you're doing philosophy or, or have been over the, the previous years, were you conscious of those parental influences no, on your thinking? I was. I, I can remember as like, I have a certain particular kind of indignation that I can remember, like, even in grad school, people saying, well, that isn't, you know, that doesn't really hold up or that doesn't really follow. And I had this not totally attractive sort of eye rolling reaction of like, well, you know what I mean? I sort of expect to be met more than halfway. Uh, And um, it's kind of bizarre. There's a paper by... um, Clive Fintel called uh, whatever, uh-huh. and David Hills I think used to talk about this too. He used to talk about whatever, and and I I was aware early on that I, I was attracted to like if anybody gave me any stat I could say well whatever, you know my my main attachment to whatever is to whatever is true in this area. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, no, I was totally aware of it, and 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 I talked about it even with my parents at the at the time. What did they make of it? What did they say when you talked about it? It was very strange. Like my my mom was really totally drawn to philosophy and thought she kind of had a grip on it and would like be repeating things back to me in a way that wasn't actually right. And then and I would say, well, not exactly. Da, da, da. And then my dad, who would like always be like just reading reading the financial news in the paper. You know, she'd say, so did you, did you get what he said? And my dad would put the paper down and give like a pitch perfect account of what he's, well, it sounds like he's saying that what a person is committed to ontologically is a function of the range of their quantifiers or something else. He'd go <laughs> on and on about this. But then he would simply say, but that can't be right because that's stupid. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, it's my dad never developed the kind of forgiving attitude that I would have liked to hear coming out of his mouth, and my mom never developed the critical attitude. And she she got into the habit actually. And this we talked about this through her whole life. She just recently died. Of uh, she got in the habit of of just saying, "Well, I never really cared if you like." had interesting thoughts. I just wanted you to be a good person and you're a good person. And I should have just sort of taken that, you know, gratefully, but that itself began to really bother me. Don't you, don't you want to like meet me? Anyway, this is getting too, too, too personal. (laughs) um, (laughs) I mean, maybe we can connect this back to the, the, the sort of epistemological dilemma you experienced coming from, from, the, the the parental directions and go to question two, which is this: Do you really believe your philosophical views? Okay, so I'm going to do the exact opposite thing now. Okay, I'm going to take what's supposed to be like a question that's sort of like deeply revealing about your relation to your faith, you know, and your commit depth of your commitment, and I'm going to just turn it into more philosophy. 
when you hear this kind of question, it sort of feels like a come to Jesus moment where you have to ask yourself, you know, like, what is my stance about all this stuff that I profess to take so seriously? And I used to, I used to, you know, say like everybody else, no, interesting. I don't really believe them. I wouldn't bet anything on their truth and so on. And that's what I think I would still say if I agreed with people like Williamson who think that the norm of belief is to believe just what you think that you'd thereby know, that you're really, you know, you don't, you know, you only, you only believe things if, if you think you have the right kind of evidence for them that would give you knowledge and might be wrong. You know, he has this nice saying, I like, belief is botched knowledge. But I don't think that anymore. People have been arguing lately, there's been a lot of work on this lately, that to use the phrase that Rothschild and Hawthorne, maybe Levi Specker, use that belief is, is weak. That it's really easy to believe stuff. You can even believe stuff that you think is likelier false than true. The, the idea is like to believe that blah is like you think of blah as one among the answers to like a multiple choice question. And it sort of contextually indicated what the other answers are. And you just you would pick blah from the other answers. And I would definitely pick my views over salient alternatives. And one example people sometimes give is say, well, who do you think is going to win like the Super Bowl this year? And you pick like whatever team you think looks really good. And you know, maybe they have only a 30% chance of winning. Everybody says, no, I think it's going to be these guys. And that's how I think belief works. I feel as attached to my beliefs as I am to views about who's going to win the Super Bowl. And I'm even happy to say who I think will win the Super Bowl. Well, maybe not literally that, but that kind of thing. So, yeah. I see. So if someone forced you to place a bet on the truth of your philosophical views, you'd rather bet on the truth of your views than anyone else's views. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned bets, actually, because I think that also can confuse the, the issue because whether you're willing to take a bet kind of depends on what you think is the likelihood that someone is going to sort of come down, you know, that the bet can be resolved. Yeah. So Dummett has this, this example. He says, you know, I believe maybe that a city will never be built on this spot. Would I bet on it? No, because I never, like there'd never be a payoff. Yeah. You'd always have to wait a little <laughs> bit longer. You know, and I feel that kind of way that, you know, the jury's never in on most philosophical questions and stuff. But if it, it's sort of like if I had to, uh, I mean, some of our colleagues and former students write about, I mean, Bob Stonlicker writes about this and, and uh, uh, Matt Malikern and Sophie Horowitz, uh, good guesses are, uh, you think of it as like a forced choice between this and the other things people would say who disagree with it. And then, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely pick pick my views. I mean, I had the choice. Yeah. <laughs> I could have picked other people's views, and I didn't. Well, I'm going to ask you another question about your relationship to philosophy that's more emotional than cognitive. This is question three. What do you love or hate most of all about philosophy? I love what I think a lot of people love about philosophy, but it, it also relates to what I hate when people don't do it this way. So I love, you know, it's exploratory nature that you can engage in as much or little guesswork as the the problem calls for. You can be irresponsible in areas where there's no way of being responsible because nobody knows what's going on, but you can't be irresponsible in areas where a lot is is known. So I, I really like the fact that you can respect and even revere questions that philosophy raises. 
without pretending that we're on the brink of settling them. And the idea that we're on the brink of settling them is, I feel, really pernicious. And it leads to a kind of philosophy which, which I hate. So I don't like the idea that philosophy, as it matures, you know, ought to become more and more like science. And just as scientists, like, they're forced to make difficult choices. Yeah, you're sentimentally attached to the idea that whatever, you know, simultaneity is absolute or, you know, you give up those attachments because you just have to make these hard choices. And it's a mark of intellectual maturity or tough-mindedness that you're willing to, like, just give up stuff. And this goes with the idea of, like, thing that I don't like about David Lewis, that it's a cost-benefit analysis, you know, choosing the right theory. It seems to me that makes sense if, like, you know, the Jeopardy clock is is ticking down and you have to give an answer and it has to be, like, the, you know, it's you don't have to decide right away. Like, nothing is really going to go wrong if, if we don't. So I agree that obscurantism is, is, is a danger, you know, in, in our discipline. And, you know, I'm totally behind the analytic project if it's all about clarity but i'm really i I think equally dangerous is like premature formalization or a certain kind of bloody mindedness like let's get on with it you know make a choice you have to give up one of these six things which one do you want to give up? i think philosophy is supposed to be a little bit mysterious and that's crucial to its appeal and it would be the end of philosophy for me if uh, it turned out Oh, it's all really cut and dried once you see it like this, you know. That's oh great. So we still got these great philosophical questions, and we just have have these, you know, fairly manageable answers. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like then that would just mean there wasn't occasion for philosophy anymore, something like that. There's I I just this line comes it comes into my head that I always love from uh, Leonard Cohen's song "Sisters of Mercy." He says, well, I've been where you're hanging. I think I can see how you're pinned. For me, that's what philosophy is about. You know, that you, you get you get pinned in certain ways and you're you're trying to wriggle free. So wriggling free is great, but the worst thing that could happen is like forgetting how you're pinned and thinking of how you're how you were pinned as just like, well, that was stupid. I shouldn't have let myself get so close to the to the whatever the book's called, where they pin down the the insects. I like to think of philosophy as a bunch of like forced errors, not unforced errors. So I totally get the loving the problems, sort of really being attached to and respecting the problems. And I definitely get the sense that there's something crass about a certain way of proposing that we're on the brink of figuring it all out. But do you have a, a kind of view about the the sort of underlying tension so i mean there's a there's no incoherence in hoping that people don't prematurely answer the questions but do you have a view about whether the questions are ultimately to be answered whether whether there be something regrettable about a kind of more distant future in which these problems are somehow resolved um no i have no objection to that in fact like it may be that as a regulative ideal you have to you don't want your commitment to the unsolvability. I'll, I'll, there's this thing that I that I in in writing about conceivability and possibility that I use, which with a kind of old-fashioned kind of concept behind it, I call it the psychoanalytic standard. Like, so 
Kripke, you know, he's trying to explain various, like, what he considers to be illusions of possibility. He says, oh, look, you think you're imagining this, but really you're imagining that, which I love. I love that idea. But then there's people that take it too far and say, like, so here's here's like a, a historical example. So Arnaud says uh, something like this is, well, maybe if Descartes finds it conceivable that he should exist in disembodied form because he doesn't realize that he's essentially embodied and that would be contrary to his nature. Uh-huh. And, 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 and to me, that's like saying, oh, well, maybe you just think that because you, you hadn't realized it was wrong. <laughs> you know? So the psychoanalytic standard is like psychoanalysts will tell you, look, you know, nothing will count as an answer to your predicament unless you could be brought around to seeing that that's how you got so screwed up. That's where you made your mistake. I mean, so just like, you know, if, if I said to Arnaud, Arnaud himself gives the example of, I can conceive that I should take a certain journey or not take it. And so I know either one is possible. I say, oh, well, maybe you failed to realize that you were essentially going to take that journey. Uh-huh. Right. Well, that's obviously <laughs> stupid. Right. So, and he wouldn't accept it. So t- to me, the measure of whether you've actually done that, got there, is whether the temptations that you have to see your way clear of are ones that you can live with the resolution of and say, okay, that's why I couldn't stop thinking that. Well, I want to ask a question that's about something philosophy adjacent, but not directly philosophy. And I'm I'm excited to ask you this. This is question four. Is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? Uh, Yes, there is. There's a, I don't understand art very well, except for novels. And so there's a uh, a book by this Irish humorist who I'm completely in love with. The book actually I just realized was not was not published while he was alive. It, it was rejected. He wrote it in 1939. It came out in the late 60s. It's called The Third Policeman. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know it? I do know this. Yeah, it's it's quite mind bending. It's totally mind bending. So tell me when you. I, mean, I, want to I, I read it and had. I have to admit, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to derail this because I read it not too long ago. It's by Flann O'Brien, right? Which is the pen name of someone whose real name I don't know. Brian O'Nolan. Got it. And I kind of liked it, but I also found it. I felt like it was a lot of it might have been over my head. It's very strange. So, t- t- so I'm excited to have you ex- talk about why why you love it so much. Well. I'm attracted to the idea that this is related to philosophy as sort of forced errors, that there's things we're entitled to think that the only sort of answer to some philosophical problems, like skeptical problems is, well, you know, we're entitled to think this. It just comes naturally to us. And, you know, unless you have a really good objection to it, you know, uh, we can stick with it. And, um, you know, the kind of thing that Wittgenstein says about, you know, knowledge or belief in the external world. But I think it's a very thin line between that and stuff that you're not entitled to, to think. And that there's no principled way of drawing the distinction. And that ultimately you're, and, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not getting to the book yet, but but uh, this is another another one of my favorite non-philosophical things, a joke that I think is philosophically really deep that I can probably tell too often, but it's uh, the joke says, uh, now I was thinking the brain is probably the most important organ in the body. But then I smacked my head. I thought, who's telling me this? Uh-huh. You know, your, <laughs> your brain is telling you that. So 
of course it's going to like to its own horn. And I was thinking, well, you know, that, that's a stupid thing to worry about. I mean, that's clearly a stupid thing to worry about. There's no like, it's not like sensible caution to think, oh, maybe my brain is misleading me. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I do sometimes suspect my stomach of misleading me. And it's like saying it's really empty when it isn't. So it's not like you can say like when you think organs are kind of tooting their own horn too much. And, and, and similarly, you can't really say like when a skeptical worry that someone might raise is like just stupid. And when it's one you have to take seriously, people do worry about that. Anyway, let me get back to the Flann O'Brien thing. So one way to re- read this novel is philosophers, to use Wittgenstein's phrase, are really into this thing they call, or he calls, penetrating the phenomena. See what's going on behind the surface, unmasking things, seeing what's really there. So this novel can be read as like a, a, a series of variations on the penetration theme, if you'll excuse the expression. Any philosopher will feel the pull of some of these like crazy notions that he entertains semi seriously in this novel. You're constantly being invited to like look at some hidden depths that are like beneath the appearances. At the same time, as you realize that they're just completely ridiculous. And a bunch of the these sort of hidden depths that the novel's pointing to are actual philosophical ideas. In fact, just rereading it for this, I came across Hume's Missing Shade of Blue, Human Identity Over Time, uh, being an illusion. There's even there's Kripke's Killer Yellow example is there. There's stuff about the content of desire and and the wrong reasons kind of problem for moral motivation. But they're stated without the solemn verbiage. They're part of this like misbegotten attempt to locate a, a money box that got stolen early on. The main character turns out to have been dead through the whole novel. But without the, all that, you know, you better take me seriously as if you call yourself a serious person kind of framing, these questions strike us as, well, kind of half is laughable, but half is just the kind of thing that we worry about. So though not what the novel does for me is it, it, make, it makes me feel like maybe I should be embarrassed about taking certain problems seriously that I take very seriously. And maybe I shouldn't, I can't really tell. But it's, he's a, the, the, the unnamed narrator. He actually names his soul. He says, I will call him Joe for convenience. Uh-huh. But the narrator himself <laughs> doesn't have a name. But he's a, a lifelong student of this guy, DeSelby, who has like a million theories of everything. And there's these long learned f- footnotes, like just, you know, DeSelby dissented from the usual theory of night as owing to the relative motion of the planets and blah, 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 preferring to explain it in terms of the accumulation of a substance he called black air, <laughs> whose origins he did not treat further. <laughs> Actually, at some point he does say that you have maybe a volcano. Anyway, so there's a lot. So that's like a obviously kind of stupid thing, but some of it isn't. So some of it, when you, you read on, you think, oh, that's like Aristotle on prime matter, or that's like blah, blah, blah. I mean, it makes me want to ask you, did you ever think yourself about writing fiction or a novel or 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 something like the third policeman uh, i did i did when i was when i was how old was i i think it was just 
before college or maybe my first year of college, wrote a, wrote something that was like trying to be like the third policeman. It was it was horrible. I actually showed it to a philosophy professor when I got to Toronto. And this was a very supportive guy in general, and he had trouble. Uh-huh. <laughs> he had trouble like choking down his his reaction. But um, yeah. I, so I, yeah, I have, I have. Actually, this is like embarrassing, but I can. I used to. I, can, I, I Gideon Rosen actually recently told me, and I and I really enjoyed reading them. There's, there's a there's a poet in the English department at Princeton who um is trying to bring back aphorisms. He has like books yeah, yeah. of aphorisms. Jim Richardson. You know? Jim yeah. Richardson. Yeah. 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 Anyway, he's terrific. Yeah. He's terrific. Do you know his uh, what's it called about the stones? Uh, I don't think I do. He has a collection called Vectors, I think, is the one that I know. Yeah. What's the thing about the stones? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's the stones' point of view on things. It just has a bunch of separate lines, like, you know, one stone asks the other, I wish we could go to the river or something like that. And the ground stone says, it will come. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as it slowly meanders and stuff. I remember one line was, "Sand makes them nervous." Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's a it's a slow burn, but I I like it. I like it. I'm trying to remember what the there's some one of his that I really love. Oh, it was it's God help my neighbors if I love them as I love myself, which I <laughs> always thought was a pretty succinct objection to the golden rule. Oh, yeah, that's no, good. He's uh he's really terrific. Yeah, that's an aphorism, is it? It's an aphorism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of them are just like jokes as well. I think a lot of them have, have the same sort of patter as, as a joke. Yeah. It's uh, a form that deserves, uh, deserves its moment again. They're really, anyway, I used to, I used to try to write aphorisms too. Cause I mean, before I knew about philosophy, I sort of, I sort of thought that was the, the form in which wisdom came, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> these sort of deep aphorisms. I was just reading this. Uh, this one been on Reddit, Reddit or something, but <laughs> gave as an answer to like, "What is your favorite work by Bertrand Russell?" And the friend said, "Oh, that's easy. The Wit and Wisdom of Bertrand Russell." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like yes. that. I, yeah. I think that was the first thing I read by Bertrand Russell: "The Wit and Wisdom of Bertrand." I really thought like these these one-liners were like, you know, if it took. If it took too long to say it, you're in the shaggy dog story analog of a joke. Well, I'm going to return us to the the wit and wisdom of Iris Murdoch for the final question. So it's another quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, what is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Okay, so there's a a very definite answer to this that I'm not sure uh, I can relate it to anything else, but I'm afraid of suffocating and not being able to catch my breath and a bit more generally getting stuck or trapped and not being able to wriggle free. I remember the Winnie the Pooh story where he he eats too much of rabbit's honey and he can't get out of rabbit's lair. He's sort of stuck in this hall. It was like a persistent nightmare for me, kind of waving my little arms around halfway through the hall. Till Eeyore came or whoever it was to pull 
pull him out. And I, that was unexpected. I was sort of imagining it was going to be, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and the premature burial, but no, it was, it was Winnie the Pooh was the, the, the yeah. true nightmare. <laughs> oh yeah. Maybe that, that, yeah, that should have been it. Yeah. I think sort of, I'm, I'm, I am literally still like totally afraid of that kind of thing, like getting stuck in the, Maybe maybe the Edgar Allan Poe reminded me of it, but you know, getting stuck beneath the floorboards. Yeah, actually, that's a funny part of the um, of that of uh, the third policeman is that there's one this one police station is stuck between the walls <laughs> of, of of this house, and so like very few crimes are are, are brought in. But anyway, that 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 like we're getting stuck behind a wall or getting bricked in behind something is is very scary to me, but. Also related to this, I mean, getting bored. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm like highly dis- distractible. I, I can't stop reassociating. I kind of more attracted to non sequiturs than to sequiturs, and it seems like that seems like it's it's a it's a problem or it ought to be a problem. But I'm I'm really dependent on it, and if I lost the ability to sort of make pointless kind of leaps from one issue to another that that scares me almost in the same way as the thought of getting stuck well maybe we'll end on that that kind of intellectual freedom and i'll say thanks steve for appearing on the podcast thanks so much it was a lot of fun i feel the opposite of stuck talking to you about this stuff so thanks Steve Yablo is David W. Skinner Professor of Philosophy at MIT. He's the author of Thoughts, Things, and Aboutness. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>